Welcome to The Things We Say. I'm Sheldon. And I'm Nate. This is a topical podcast where the topics are chosen at random. Sometimes they will be profound, and sometimes they will be stupid. But no matter what, we have a lot to say about them. We are known for the things we do. We become the things we think. We live the things we believe. These are the things we say. back on the things we say i'm sheldon and i'm nate we're glad to be back doing this again in a fairly consistent fashion yeah it's good we've been doing well <laughs> relatively speaking <laughs> uh just so you know it is now heater season on the things yes. we say which if you hear that that that's why we're broadcasting from the underground bunker yes and it's chilly down the here. dungeon that is my basement we're all of my stuff has been banished to this stuff used to be up in our spare bedroom but no longer in spare room in spare room yes (laughs) yeah yeah i'm i'm the very real stereotype of all the male stuff getting put into a sad corner of our house because our children and my wife have taken over everything else it happens to the best of us it does and I'm, i'm not you know mad about it at least i have a place it's not like you spend a lot of time down here, though. No, I don't. Well, between this and the audio drama, it can be significant, but... Oh, yeah. You can plug the audio drama. That's fine. Yes. The Embers of Eden audio drama. Season 2 just started. You should go listen to it. Download it. Listen to it. Rate it. Review it. Even if it's a bad review. Give us, give us some traffic. We're both in it. We are both in it. <laughs> we are. Shelton... I have... The shortest line possible. You, you do have a, a bit part, but you may get something bigger in an upcoming <laughs> season. I'm not looking for anything. Sheldon's Sheldon's prerequisite for uh, doing a voice when I asked him about it was, "Can I sound like me?" Yes. That was that was his question for me. If was you can guys I sound need <laughs> to know? I cannot do any form of accents. <laughs> even when I attempt them, I know they're sounding bad before I even start. <laughs> My wife is really bad at accents too. Everything she does sounds like, I don't even know what she sounds like. Here we go. Oh, give it. Things that we know better than to even try. Oh. Rap. Oh. Is one. I know without a doubt. First of all, I have no innate sense of rhythm. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, the whole thing escapes me. Okay. So I could rap. Nobody would take it seriously. If if somebody actually saw me do it, it would be laughable, <laughs> even if it wasn't terrible. I just But if it was just the audio, you think it would be okay? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to write anything in that vein. Like that is just not my thing. There's too many words. And and lyrics are something I already struggle with when I write. Um melodies I can do fairly easily. Lyrics are my are my tough thing because I'm too much of a I think too much about what I'm writing lyrically and like I need it to ha- I know some writers who literally can just they'll say words and it doesn't even mean anything but the song's awesome and it's fine. I can't I can't make myself do that. I've struggled with that. Um I even struggle in the phase every musician who has ever been a writer knows the phase of when you're just saying weird words to fit your melodies and rhythms till you can find words that fit. Even doing that bothers me because yeah. it just, I need it to be significant. I need it to say something. <laughs> so yeah, I could not, I could not write in that vein at all. But I mean, I spent enough years listening and singing along to Toby Mac on DC talk and various other things lately. Yeah. I, I remember, I won't name the song, but I will name the artist. I remember there was, <laughs> there was a, a particular song that had an Eminem uh, rap in it and a certain section and when Kayla and I were first dating, it kicked into that section. And I, word for word, was doing it along with him. And Kayla just gave me this wide-eyed look. Like, first of all, how do you know all these lyrics? And second of <laughs> all, I've never heard you do anything like this. I'm like, that's because I don't do anything like this ever. But we're in a car, so it's acceptable. <laughs> it's yeah. just us. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I know better than to try rapping or accents 
The other one I just don't attempt very often at all is dancing in public. I dance. I will in public. do. I will do mosh pits. Yes. Things because where you're there's only not seen a lot of rules from the shoulders up. Right. Yeah. And things like that I enjoy because everybody's just going after it and nobody cares. Right. But like dancing at weddings and stuff, I have just to like get the party going. You know, but it's like not your if they need somebody stupid to get out there with them and do something <laughs> stupid in order to make everybody feel better. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. But beyond that, nope. Yeah. Yeah. My wife doesn't really dance. I mean, she she dances and enjoys it, but she does. She she's not good at it. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm a I'm a decent dancer. Decent. Yeah, you're pretty good. I'm decent. Yeah. For whatever that's worth. Yeah. Th- man, things things I won't. Things that you don't e- you know better than to even attempt. Uh, electrical work in the house at all. Ah, like I will replace uh, light fixtures, and I will replace wall sockets. That's it. I will not do any any other form of wiring or anything. It I don't know enough, and it terrifies me. Electrical isn't too bad, but I still don't attempt it. No. Because I have two people in my family that are way better at it than I am. See, there you go. So I just call them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> plumbing, I will attempt. Yeah, plumbing's just Legos. And gas. Uh, gas lines. I, gas makes I me a little too. a little nervous as well. I got over my fear of that. Yeah. But Yeah. Uh, yeah, brake, brake lines Ooh. are something I don't mess with. I will mess with almost anything in a car until it comes to, like, the actual brake fluid and lines and all that yeah i don't understand it enough right like i know you're supposed to bleed the brakes to get air out of it right that that scares me yeah like i know there's a process and i could probably learn it and it just has never been worth it to me yeah for sure i'll replace calipers i'll I'll replace everything on a car but not that yeah yeah I've never given a ton of thought. That's the funny thing. I don't give a ton of thought to the things that I would never do or should never no, do. Just the things you run into and you're yeah. like, nope, I'm, I know better than to even try. Yeah. But yeah, man, that, that's never, I've, I've never really even, I've never really thought of that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like all of mine would be really mundane things again, like electrical work or, 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 you know, gutting a room in my house and trying to redo it all myself like i wouldn't i wouldn't do that any any home improvement projects with my wife i will never attempt ever again we we (laughs) did it once we nearly we nearly killed each other the very first time we tried to put ikea furniture together uh, because we did not understand how the other thought and worked through that process (laughs) now we can do it but that first time man it was not it was not good yeah not at all Man, I'm, and see now I'm gonna randomly think of things that I should never do, <laughs> or that as you we do go, never do. or that I do never do. Hmm. So I found out where the phrase "red herring" comes from. Okay. Do you know this? I don't. So did you know that when head when herring it it originated in 1807, and the entry that I found here says when herring is salted and smoked, it turns red and pungent. Okay. In 1807, a British journalist named William Cobbett wrote about how he used red herrings to lay a false scent trail for some of his hunting dogs when he was training them. From his story, the expression red herring came to mean a distraction created to divert attention from the real issue. Yeah. So he was actually using the salted, smoked herring to lead his dogs down the wrong path. Interesting. Or the right path since he was teaching them how to follow us. Right. Scent. The right, the correct scent, not right. the, yeah. Well, cause obviously I've con as far as contextually, I know that that's what a red herring is. It's, right. It's, uh, which automatically always reminds me of the whole film trope of a MacGuffin, which I don't know where that came from. Oh, you would have, you watched, uh, oh, it's not free guy. What's the other one that Ryan Reynolds has just been in with, uh, uh, Red Notice. It's on Netflix. Ooh, no, we we saw previews for it. We want to watch okay. it. Yeah, it's on our list. Yes. Red Notice in there. 
they have a MacGuffin and they actually call it out in the movie. They call it the they MacGuffin? Call it, they call it out. He's like, you could have just called it the MacGuffin. Or like, <laughs> he, he makes a comment about it being a MacGuffin in the movie. And I thought immediately of you. <laughs> I know we have It's mentioned- a little Indiana Jones-esque yeah. at that part. Yeah. But... Well, just for those who don't know, because I know we've mentioned this before on the podcast, but for those of you who haven't listened that far or have joined us recently, a MacGuffin is a film, usually an item, sometimes a person, who serves no plot other than to allow the movie to happen. It's usually a thing that someone needs to acquire or a person that they're trying to track down. Yeah, um, I'm not ruining anything. This this one is a jeweled egg. Yeah. Yeah, that they there's three of them and one is missing. Yeah, and That's on the whole and thing. every every item in all of the Indiana Jones films are MacGuffins. Uh, the Ark is a MacGuffin. The yeah. the the Holy Grail is a MacGuffin. I mean, they're all they they serve no actual purpose to the plot. They just are a thing that allows the movie to happen. Uh, the Maltese Falcon is a classic, uh, where the movie itself is titled after what the MacGuffin is. <laughs> it's an old Humphrey Bogart movie. Um, and I think that may be one of the first ones that they really like pinned that on. But I don't know where the I don't know where the phrase came from. I'll have to look that up at some point. Huh. I've never yeah. been curious enough to look up that. Yeah. Actually Free Guy was very good as well. Both those. Yeah, which Ryan one Reynolds. which one was that? Ryan Reynolds. He's in, trapped in a video game or something. Oh yeah. I wanted yeah. to go see that, but Kayla wasn't all about it. Yeah. Yeah. Kayla's funny with movies, you know. She just you never know what she's not gonna like. That's okay. I watched it with Rylan and he's all into video games, oh, yeah. so that really helped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was like reading the um what, oh, what was the, the, the oh Ready Player One. Yeah. Reading that book was phenomenal. I've heard that the film sucked really bad. I enjoyed the film, but I never read the book. See, and, and that's what I've heard from everybody. Anybody who read the book just said the film was awful in terms yeah. of how they Yeah, you you can't let your reading of the book ruin the movie. Yeah, it's just, but there are. It levels. makes you a snob, then. But no, it's not necessarily because there are certain levels where you just go. You didn't even try. That's true. Like there, that's my thing. Is so I like, can see that. I've always been a huge fan of the Chronicles of Narnia. Right. I'm miffed because they've never gotten. Whenever they've done a movie series, they've never gotten far enough to get to my favorite book, which is the Horse and His Boy. That's yeah. my favorite in the Chronicles series, but. When they recently remade them and Weta Workshop was involved in all of it, I think uh, Disney was actually the one. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was phenomenal. And it wasn't perfectly accurate yeah. to the book, but they kept the spirit of it and made it work in some ways, added to it, like made it a little better. Prince Caspian was like me going, oh man, are they going to do this? There were some things that were good, but they were just starting to. And by the time I saw previews, for Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I'm like, this is not even based on the actual book anymore. They're just trying to throw all these things in so that gotcha. it plays to whatever they think audiences want. So by the time a producer or a or a uh, a film conglomerate or whatever it may be actually comes in and says, okay, and here's what we're gonna do, like they they don't care about the the actual source material. And any movie that creates a film that doesn't care about the source material, I'm done. I just can't. Yeah. I can't care about it. Um, they did that initially. I was afraid they were going to do that with the hunger games, but they ended up doing fairly well with those. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, there are some movies that they did so poorly. And again, Chronicles I think I do some of this in the reverse. I mostly like, I read the hunger games after I watched some of the movies. Yeah. Like I, I sometimes go the other way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess for me, and this is one of the things that I think is obviously different. I have an extremely vivid imagination. Yeah. So my thing is, is like when I'm reading the book, like I could tell, I could describe the character, what they look like to me, what they're, you know, you name it. And it's the same. Like every time I'll read that book, I don't care what the pictures are in the thing. I have an image of, of those people. And so, uh, the first in cr- the Chronicles of Narnia series really nailed, like even that, like the way that I viewed all the kids and whatever they, they really, really did a good job with it. But, uh, yeah, the 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 biggest issue with the Hunger Games series that I had initially is that they they tried to make it a kids movie initially with that first yeah. one because the first book is just brutal. I mean, the description of the of the actual Hunger Games and what goes on is is really brutal, and they they kind of tamed it. And then they realized, oh no, people who are seeing this can take this, so we'll we'll yeah. stretch it a little more. But yeah, there's there's 
I don't know. And I've always loved books, so it's really difficult for me to talk about movies that I like better than the book. Hmm. Lord of the Rings is probably the best version of it I've ever seen in terms of being true to the books. And that's mostly because Tolkien so vividly described everything that all Peter Jackson, I mean, he already had all of his just like here, here's a thing that's described, you know, visual effects and artists right. like do this. And, uh, and he was very faithful to that. Now there were parts he left out of the book, some things he tweaked and changed, but it was nothing that changed the, again, the, the core and the essence of the, of what the, I never the made were. it through reading all the Lord or Lord of the Rings the, stuff. The trick is you got to skip all the songs and Lemurky things. If you skip those things, it becomes very tolerable. <laughs> That's the trick. Yeah. There I, I started with the Hobbit and I think I may have read three three quarters or two thirds of the Hobbit. And yeah, and failed. that's light compared to all the others. That's a children's yeah. book. The others are not. I was probably a child when I was trying to do it. Yeah, it but yeah. Uh as much as I love Tolkien for many reasons, uh r- poetry and uh songwriting were not his strong suits at all. <laughs> not at all. But that's okay. You can't be perfect. All the time. So there you go. <laughs> Went down the trail of movies there for a, a bit. A little bit. Again, this is just this is just going to be one of our grab bags. We we didn't have a a focus coming in here. We just wanted to talk right. about random things. So we're just going to shoot from the hip. You were going to talk about movies a little bit. I was in in that I've had a weird. I I realized epiphany. You yeah, had I, an epiphany. I did. I had a, a small, a very small epiphany today when I was thinking about what we would do here. In that I have specific movies that have made me love particular things in my life or start loving particular things in my life. Um, I don't, I don't have any of these. And as you start talking through them, maybe something will jog in my head, but I watch movies purely for entertainment. Right. And so like, that's the place that they live in my brain. And it's not like I, they inspire me to do something in particular or, well, and and I think that's one of the things that capture my imagination in a way that's like, Oh, I didn't have this hobby, and now I do because yeah. of this movie. Well, no. and I think it stems from my childhood because, again, I was a big reader, and that was a lot of the things that I I would play growing up as a kid were either related to books or movies. Gotcha. So I would read a book series and like, okay, we're going we're gonna to play the Chronicles of Narnia for the next three weeks. That's going to be our big thing. Or, you know, hey, I'm into Power Rangers now. Let's play Power Rangers all the time. Or uh, Hook was a big one for me. Yeah. When Hook came out, it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to play that. We're going to do that. Uh, Westerns was a big one for me. So all my childhood, the things that my I took. kids really loved Hook. Oh, when Hook, I showed was, it to Hook is it was great. A great. It is a great movie. It is movie. a classic, and it is nearly perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's nearly perfect. Robin Williams at his best. Yeah. Did you know that they originally were casting Michael Jackson to play Peter Pan in that? What? But you think about it. Michael Jackson, when that was being filmed, was literally at the peak of his powers. Yep. He kind of had that boyish mystique thing yeah, that was going on. I can see it. It was before he'd really jacked with his face. And so Spielberg originally wanted him to do it. Him and Spielberg, they'd worked together Wait, on E.T. why can't I picture who was Peter Pan? Robin Williams. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they wanted Michael yeah, to play okay. the adult Peter yeah. Pan. Oh, okay. And initially, That's what I was trying but to... But then all of his first yeah. child molestation... Uh, accusations came out, and so they distanced himself from. Gotcha. Because he'd done stuff with Disney for decades uh, since he was a kid. But anyway, that little side note. One of the things I love about that film too is you watch. You watch Dustin Hoffman as Hook. Yeah. And there's never a point in there where you go, "Look, it's Dustin Hoffman as Hook." Like no. you know it is, but like it's just Hook. It's, it is. He Hook. just he just plays Hook, and it's perfect. And uh, why that never I, crossed my mind to yeah. ask well, why who, who that was that was yeah. playing Hook. Another little weird thing about that movie is, okay, you know the one pirate who gets stuck in the boo box? Yeah. That was Glenn Close. <laughs> Seriously, they dressed Glenn Close in drag, really? gave her a beard, did all this stuff. And when you watch it now, you can totally see that huh. that's her. But yeah, Glenn Cl- there were a bunch of random little things where just these random <laughs> actors were in there uh, doing parts. So yeah, Glenn Close dressed as a pirate and got stuck in the boot box so everybody watch it it's really bizarre but yeah hook is a great movie um but as as a result of this i've realized that so many of these things also are what led to some of my actual interests so i i've always been an intensely visual person again whether that's imaginative or like seeing something Mm -hmm. um i mean i could literally go down the line and quote movies and talk through scenes like that 
it, they're just in my head from watching them a few times. Um, but I like the thing that turned me on to baseball that made me love baseball was the Sandlot, the movie, the Sandlot, which have you ever seen that? Um, it's a really famous one and I know I've definitely seen parts of it. Yeah, it is. But I don't know that I've ever, I may have seen it on cable or something where it was in passing. Yeah. But it wasn't like, it is, I'm going to sit It is down essentially everything it. that is magic about childhood and everything that is perfect about baseball all mixed in together. And that was the one where it's like, okay, I've watched The Sandlot and I think it's amazing. Let's play, quote, pretend yeah. baseball. And at, at my at the house we lived in in Coshocton, down the road, which felt like a really far way down the road, but was just spitting distance now when I go there as a grown person, um, there was a, a, Bla- a Baptist church that had a baseball field. Yeah. That was a, so it was pretty close. It to was it. literally like a sandlot. So, so we would go there. We would dress up as close as we could to the kids in the sandlot, go down there, and we would <laughs> play the sandlot. But we would actually just play baseball. But it's like we got to be those characters and do those things. And so that's what really like sparked a real love of baseball in me was, the, was that Interesting. movie. Um, same thing was true of basketball. I remember I watched uh, – it was still in Coshocton. It was so the – yeah, go ahead. You wouldn't have connected – those I mean, thoughts necessarily because for me like the love of baseball came from actually playing it me too in little league me too but when i but but it's like the well okay so the phillies were actually good when right i was and the indians about were good the time i was learning to yeah. play so watching them in the series and then going out and right. playing little and the league. indians were just starting to become something mm-hmm. you know that right around that 1995 you know into the into the uh, later 90s too and obviously earlier 90s they were something but they weren't they weren't going to playoffs they weren't doing anything yet um so again all of that stuff coalesced and again i watched i mean i grew up watching you know the natural and i grew up watching uh field of dreams like i love these movies too so but the sandlot was the first one where i saw kids my age playing baseball and loving it and i was like oh this is actually cool like it just had a different level um and then i'll never forget because it came on after the series finale of the cosby show in 1992, my family and I, we were watching the series finale of the, of the Cosby show, and then immediately following that, whatever network we were watching on was uh, playing a TV movie uh, that was about Pete Maravich in high school. It was a semi-fictional, semi-biographical uh, thing of him as, a, as an eighth grader. Yeah. And it blew my mind seeing this kid... Uh, who did a very good job playing Pete Maravich. I mean, that's a very difficult, that's a tall yeah. order. Um, and of course you go back and watch the movie now and it's like, Oh no, that's way more lame than I thought it was when I watched it as a kid. Um, but finding out who he was and then, you know, my dad had uh, VHS tapes of his uh, college highlights, which are ridiculous to watch. It's, it's like watching Kyrie Irving doing some of the stuff he did at his, the peak of his powers in terms of ball handling, but in the sixties, which yeah. no, especially no white kid was doing at the time. It's really incredible to watch. Um, but that's the thing that made me really fall in love with basketball was like, oh, this kid and he did this stuff and he worked and he and I was amazed by it. And so it it kind of tick tripped off this whole intense love for that that I hadn't had previously. Huh. Um, and honestly, the same thing happened to me as a musician. I, I started loving when I saw a musician who what they did in terms of how they were on stage, how demonstrative they were, including how they were playing. Yeah. That's the thing that made me go, I want to do that. Like, I want to do that thing. Teach me how to do that. Yeah. Um, so that's always been like, a what a, was, what was that for you? Like when you, Abraham, Le- Abraham Laboriel, uh, he was on, I think the first thing I ever saw him on was a Ron Canoli, uh, who was an artist for integrity. I think he probably still is, uh, back in the day. Um, that integrity music was just huge. They, they did these massive, you know, worship things and they had all these pro musicians that would come in and Abraham Laboriel was the bass player. And this guy, I didn't know at the time, but he was one of the most prolific session bass players that has ever lived still is. I mean, he's been on thousands of albums. I mean, Mm. from Michael Jackson to Stevie wonder to Madonna to, um, you know, any gospel artist you could name. I mean, he's been all over the place. 
um, been been playing I think since the since the sixties, and actually his son is Paul McCartney's drummer. Uh, Abraham Laboriel Jr. is is huh. his son and is and is Paul McCartney's drummer. But um, I watched him and he was just so he had this intensity and this energy to what he did, and he was he is the reason I am a musician. Like Abraham Laboriel is the reason I'm a musician. <laughs> That's um, wild. And uh, and it's also one of the things why I always get kind of. I get kind of uh, weird about the whole idea of um, when, when you're talking in terms of uh, race or gender of, of needing representation that, oh, you need to see somebody who looks like you doing a thing. Right. Abraham Laboriel is a black Mexican man. Yeah. He's amazing. I saw him do what he did, and I'm like, I want to be that. I and want I didn't, to do that. It didn't yeah. matter. I, I didn't even occur to me what his what – his, gender or nationality was um and so i i think that that's one of the reasons why i always kind of rank attacks because i mean everybody i've ever looked up to whether it's michael jackson or uh you know i could go through different actors or whatever it's like that's a, that's never been a, a factor for me at all right um anyway that's a rabbit trail of its own um but yeah almost everything i've ever come to truly truly love it's it's been tripped by seeing a particular person do a particular thing and then aspiring to that and ultimately failing, but in failing to do what that person is doing, I kind of created my own thing uh, as a musician, as a, as a, I don't know, whatever. You I mean, you name it. That's, that's right. just a thing for me. But anyway, that, again, a random little, random little that rant That is interesting me. though, because I, I don't know that movies do that for me at all. Now people, there are certain yeah. people that I found fascinating. Like I want to be able to do that. Right. I, I don't know, like from an early, from an early age, listening to radio, I was always like, man, it would be so cool yeah, to be on the radio. Like, how do you get to be on the radio? How can you, how do people just get on a show like Rush Limbaugh or somebody get on there for three hours yeah, and just go? I don't understand it. How, what, what kind of preparation would you have to do? And like, I'm thinking all this as I'm <laughs> listening to it. I'm like, nobody just gets up there and rolls like that. Yeah. From one thing to the next to the next. And I'm like, yeah, you got callers. You got a few other things that you're, you're riffing back and forth with them. But other than that, I'm like, how, how does this work? And how, how do you DJ? Like there's a, there's a whole thing. Right. And I always found that really inspiring, like listening to the radio and then, watching people that were at the top of their game right public speaking or radio stuff like always made me right how how do they do what they do that was yeah that was something for me yeah but. and i think i think that's one of the things that's been interesting too for me is whether it's whether it's movies or whether it's musicians or even even somebody like djs or whatever is coming to the realization of what actually goes on behind the scenes to make it happen yeah both in the sense of the preparation that goes into it, but also the sense of control that an artist may or may not have, or a DJ may or may not have. I mean, DJs for the most part get a, get a list from whoever their boss is and like play these records. Yeah. Like this is what you're going to do on the air. And it's not somebody just saying, Hey, this is a new thing that I discovered. Check it out. Um, and how all of these things essentially eventually get corporatized and like franchised essentially. Yep. Um, and that's one of the things that I think I really struggle with with music nowadays is because I feel like there's this there's too much industry control over and and you're seeing the same thing in movies now where it's like, well, what can we remake that was successful in the nineties or yeah. you know what movie can we reboot or you know there's there's not a whole lot of um forefront activity that is that is new and fresh. You're seeing that a lot at places like Netflix um they'll take risks. Um, you're seeing that a lot in TV. TV is taking way more risks than than movies are, um, yeah, and really surpassing them in a lot of ways. But that's one of the interesting things you you start to realize. I mean, I, I remember having a conversation with your wife once, totally unrelated, but we were talking about songwriting, and she referenced the fact that at this time Adele was really really big. And, and I don't mean her size. I'm sorry if anybody implied <laughs> that but when I just said, but when she was really hitting her stride and she said to me, well, Adele doesn't have to take her songs and, and, and introduce them to someone else and have them sift through it. I was like, yeah, Adele now doesn't have to do that, but Adele then had to do that. Like Adele coming from nothing 
at some point had somebody that was picking through her songs and be like, oh, no, don't do this, don't do this, do that. Maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong, but somebody was picking through it. And then an artist hits a point where it's like, you're making so much money, do whatever you want. And that's when you get genuine... Even things that are just genuine fun. control, genuine art, genuine expression, you know, right. all those things. Um, yeah. Well, the same was true with like Taylor Swift. You can look at yeah. that. Like she didn't have a whole lot of control early on. And a lot of what she's doing now is trying to take all that back. Right. Right. So. Which I have a love hate relationship with Taylor Swift because <laughs> I don't think she's that good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm amazed that she has become as. I mean, I'm amazed at her consistency and her staying power. Um, yep. She has adapted and she's, I mean, I have a ton of respect for her, but I don't get it. I, I look at her and I'm like, I don't know why you are so popular. I don't understand why everybody loves Taylor Swift. <laughs> at most, I've heard an album from her and I'm like, oh, that's different. Or it, or it had the promise of being different. And then you listen to the rest of it and you're like, nah, this is just all the same stuff. Um, what was it that did that for me? Oh, Katy Perry's one album made me kind of sad in that way which one was that where it didn't it was the one with dark horse on it yeah that album there were a few tracks where you thought to yourself oh man she's really gonna you know branch out into something else do something on that one but she didn't track for track it was like yeah. there were great moments in that album uh, same was true for taylor swift's red her red album there were awesome moments but then there were other times like this is just yeah. a taylor swift and that's album. an artist at the peak that does yeah. have control and i do think that's one of the reasons why i've always gravitated to john mayer is because you never know what his next album is going to sound like yeah i mean it's going to be sappy love songs like that's what he does right but again at the peak of that he's like okay forget this i'm going to go do a, a blues trio and it was phenomenal it was the best thing he'd done and then Continuum came out of that, which was the best thing he'd done. Isn't he touring live right now with... Uh, Dead and Company. Grateful yeah, Dead. The Grateful Dead, yeah. He's part of a group called Dead. <laughs> They're all like twice his age, and he's just sitting there rocking out guitar, doing what he's doing. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it... Yeah. <laughs> Again, this is just a random grab bag of things. No, it's kind of like where what you found inspiring. And, and like... Now that we have a podcast and I've tried this out for a little while, it it is insanely hard yeah. to do what those radio hosts do every right. single day. Yeah, like I, like I couldn't imagine having to do this every single day. No, that's for insane. three hours. For three hours, yeah, that's insane. Well, and Rush always, well, Rush always blew me away because it was just him. It's just him. Like, yeah, well, you hear him interacting with Snurdly and callers, Yeah, but like he's the only one on a mic. You're the, you're and you the can, only one you could hearing. watch on that cam. Like he had a stack of papers. Yeah. And he's constantly giant surfing. stack of stuff. Yeah. Surfing through whatever emails or, you know, whatever he's going through. To, yeah. He was, he was something else. Yeah. That was a lot of work. Yeah. For one person. Yeah. 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 The two, the two radio personalities that I listened to the most actually both, both died this year. Yeah. In, in Rush Limbaugh and then Mike Trevisano here just a, a few months back now or a month back. It's unbelievable. Uh, it's really weird. Um, yeah, because there are. They're just those certain voices that you've had in your in your ear for years, maybe all your life, and then they're just not there anymore. I mean, Rush always sounded like a particular place in my life. Like, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. that was what my grandpa had on in his right, truck right. when you'd be driving with him. And it's like, huh. I'm like right back in this green Dodge all over again. <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> yeah. Very true. Every time. But, you know, it's one of those things. Plenty of people have plenty of feelings about Rush, and I really yeah. don't care no. what, what you think about him. But for me, it was nostalgic rather than like, oh, I'm going to sit here and defend every word that he says. For sure. For sure. But, and I think that's one of the things that's interesting that differentiates something like movies or musicians especially is that their body of work is always there. Yeah. Someone who's a speaker, someone who, who's a who's a who's a radio broadcaster. Like once they're gone, they're just gone. Like yeah. And yes, they'll replay things. I mean, I I think about the oh, what's that thing they have on WTAM on late night? Uh, it's where this guy would talk about conspiracy theories. Oh, and like coast Supernet- to coast, coast to coast. Yeah, I mean that's all old stuff. It's not new. I mean the guy's yeah. been dead for a long time. But that's one of the uh, few. What, Nori, what is his name? I don't remember. Oh crap. But that's one of the few instances where almost like a musician would with playing albums still over the radio. I mean, you'll still hear Prince stuff all the time. You still hear Michael Jackson all the time. Like, 
Like their their in, their body of work. But endures. coast to coast is fascinating. Sometimes, it is. even even though it's old. Like well, because one it, time I tuned in and he was talking about the conspiracies around Oklahoma City. Yeah, and it was all a bunch of stuff that I'd never heard. And I'm like, yeah, holy cow. Well, and not only that, but it it ref, it it can touch on things that are currently happening. Yeah, that you basically point to and say, eventually this and this and this, and it's going to end up here. And you're like, holy crap. Everybody thought he was off his rocker talking to like four truckers in the middle of the night. Yeah. And no. some of it is it's pretty intense. <laughs> it's pretty wild. Yeah. But yeah, he's he's fairly unique in that. I can't I can't think of anybody else that I've ever heard that has a continuing legacy on that. Interesting though, I think listening to um the Naked Bible podcast, Mike Heiser. Yeah. The Dr. Mike Heiser, the guy who runs that podcast. Uh, I think he's been on Coast to Coast. Really? Yes. He was on there to discuss, was it Angels? Oh, no. And Mike Heiser has made kind of a name for himself in the UFO uh, community because he will talk to them. Yeah. And he's a Bible scholar. Right. And he will actually sit down, discuss, and talk with people. Take about, them seriously to have a conversation yeah, with them. And, and be like, yeah. Even ancient people saw things in the sky and they would try to describe it. And yeah. he would sit down and talk to him about it and not, you know. Yeah. Well, I've, I think I've admitted this on here before, but I've seen UFOs twice. Right. And I'm not saying they were aliens. They were just things that I knew were unidentified not objects in Una the sky. Yeah, unidentified flying objects. It was something that was flying. I don't know what it was. So to you, it was it unidentified. Was, it was 100% a UFO. I don't know what that, what it was. And right. No, nothing, nothing beamed me out. I didn't, I didn't watch cows get mutilated or crop circles get made or any of that junk. But again, yes, I have seen those. But when you talk about the spirit world or when you say, you know, these are real entities. Yeah. And you start going down that trail, the people that that circle touches. Yeah. Are. Yeah. <laughs> they're there <laughs> they're there yeah and and it's like they're and so he overlapped enough and was willing to talk enough that with people and have respectful dialogue yeah that he wasn't just writing people off that he was on coast to coast a couple times that's interesting yeah that's really interesting i need to start listening to that show again i haven't listened it's probably on right now as we speak it seems yep. to be right around the hour that it <laughs> that it's on but yeah turn off Sunday night football and go over to coast to coast. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, we've led people way down the hey, unbeaten path. Why not? But it's a why lot of fun. not? Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is what you get on grab bag nights. You never know. Cause we don't know. Yeah. Mm. The, the one uh, speaking of weird things that are happening, it's, it's really odd to me that the whole argument about Roe versus Wade is happening right now with a completely Democrat Congress yeah. and Democrat presidency. Yeah. And that that's what's trying to capture headlines right now. It's yeah. like they control the, the Democrats control both both houses of Congress and the presidency. And what they're worried about is the Supreme Court. And yeah. I'm like, how about how about we worry about what we have in, in our control and what we can actually change or influence right. and not worry so much about the other branch well and again though i think that's it's like the one thing that isn't in in the democrat control right now but i think that's part of the issue is that it's 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 a wild card no is that what it because is because progressives have been long trying to get a stranglehold on the courts um and i can say that unequivocally i mean you can you can find all kinds yeah. of articles about how well we need to pack the court or it needs to change or whatever people don't like who are who are and again I am separating liberals from progressives here because there is a difference. They do not like the fact that the Supreme Court can stop things. Right. That they have deemed need to be pushed forward. Well, Republicans don't like it any better. They don't like it any better either, but they don't propose to change the court to in order artificially to artificially pack the court. Yeah, yeah. In, in innately conservatism, even if it's the the red blooded, you know, God guts and glory ridiculous conservatives that i would not very much align with they do not want to see the systems drastically change right. as they were in terms of the branches they're not in favor of that yeah. so i can at least give them that um but again if somebody is a progressive 
in terms of their political leanings, which really does not have anything to do with the parties so much, other than they are tend to be in one party more now than anything else. Um, they again, the idea of that is I know what the preferred future should be, and we will drag you into it, kicking and screaming if we must, because we know this is the one. That's why I hate that phrase on the right side of history, because I'm like, like, what kind of arrogance is it that you think you're already you know, writing history? Yeah, you're right. Like. Everybody thought they were on the right side of history until they weren't. Like that's <laughs> that is the most idiotic phrase ever. But I feel like that's a lot of the the push and mentality behind that. And so it does. It disturbs me when I hear t- people talking about um, major things like that. That you know, it's like yes, people in the future will use the exact same morality that we are using today, right, to judge our actions in right. this time. When I think about that, I mean, even with like. You know, while while President Obama was in office, they created the nuclear option for the for the Senate to not have to get two thirds majority for things. Right. And I remember in order to pass Obamacare. Right. And I remember Mitch McConnell, who I cannot stand <laughs> as a politician. He has been there too long. Captain and he is too corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I remember him saying, you're going to regret this because we're going to use this, too. And they did. And the whole time I'm like this shouldn't exist like this is not this is not okay but this is what happens yeah is is one side will do something too extreme and then the other side will just say okay we'll do it right back and here we end up it is interesting though what what does happen if the court overturns roe well that's one of the because roe just basically says you you won't right you, the government will not imprison you or otherwise right. penalize you and for the funny thing abortion. is, is Roe it v- doesn't actually make it right. Legal. Roe v. Wade is not law; it is precedent. Right, it's legal precedent, yeah. and it's really bad legal precedent. If you get into a lot of the details of what actually went on during that, regardless of where you stand on the issue of abortion, it is really, really shaky. And that is why, um, what I will—I won't even say pro-choice because I feel like pro-choice, pro-life, and pro-abortion are three completely different categories. But I will say the pro-abortion sect is very disturbed by the idea of Roe v. Wade because they know how easy it would be to actually overturn it. It literally is just the court saying this was actually a really bad decision. It's just like the Dred Scott decision or Brown versus the Board of Education. Like They can kind of look at these things and say, you know what? This was an error in judgment. It needs to be changed. That's all Roe v. Wade is. Yeah, It is not law. It's not a constitutional thing. It's not an amendment. It is not. And we talk about it like it is. Um, I don't know how many times I've seen the phrase the constitutional right to abortion. I'm like, that is not even there. Like yeah. they use they use the right to privacy as the only linchpin in the Constitution to make that precedent. Um, so they know it's shaky. Wait, the right to privacy, the right to privacy. That's that's where the because it's an exchange between you and your doctor. Yes. And therefore, it is not OK for the for the government to create a law based on preventing or allowing abortion. Wait, so the doctor, so the government is not allowed to insert itself in a private thing between me and my doctor. Right. Say, like, what kind of vaccinations I can take exactly. and which ones I can't. And therein lies where this is also getting <laughs> like, very hairy. Boy, right we've now. really muddled with that, haven't yes. we? If that's, if it's on right to privacy, I can't think of anything in the U.S. Constitution that's more blown full of holes than yeah. the right to privacy. Exactly. Currently. So, so again, it's, it's on the shakiest ground it's ever been. I mean, really, think about it, everyone, right now. What do you think that you actually have a right to privacy from your federal government today? Name one thing that you believe that you have a right to privacy about. We'll wait. I can't think <laughs> of a solitary thing they don't have their fingers in. Or if they can't decide to. Or, they, or on a whim, they couldn't just ask for. Right. And that's the thing is, you know, everybody wanted to talk about something like that. Not only can I think of anything that I can't keep private from them, I can think of a number of things that they compel me to do. Right. On a routine basis. Well, and that's one of the things that disturbed me so much about the Affordable Care Act. They're trying to put it forward as, oh, we want people to have insurance. We want people to have insurance. Okay. What you really want is control of the healthcare system because that's what it actually gives you. And through this whole thing with the pandemic, we've seen some of that. Right. And and being that my wife is a medical professional, I have been had a different insight into that even than most people do, because right. I've seen the effects that it's had where the federal government saying do this or we will do this. 
this this kind of it's, control is not good. Blatant coercion. Yes, hundred percent. And so, but yeah, I, the right v, to but, privacy does not yeah, exist. But that's it, but that's, that's that's my case. But that's where there. it comes it, from. That was doesn't. their that was their argument and their their reason for their decision. I wish it did. Yeah, I, wish I it agree. Did exist. I agree. But I can't think of an instance in which it would. Yeah, I agree. I I think though, if it if it gets overturned, which I'm not even sure it will, um, I see one of two things happening. I see it getting overturned as precedent, but basically something being uh being put forward where it says that up to it puts hard limits on it so up to x amount of weeks will allow it but not from this point on like federally like this won't be legal anymore up until this right or you will see it just repealed entirely or not repealed but the decision reversed and you'll see states then individually codified into law in their in their individual states um So, which how hard would it be to pass a law in New York, really? Right. Like, right. And so it's you'll it's, get your law in some yeah. places and not others. That's what'll right. happen. And that's the thing that's tricky about it too is is that is that it's you know for for people who want to talk about the science. I mean, the science of it is is way beyond what they made decisions on based in the in what well, I don't right. remember was seven was it the seventies still? I think it was late seventies. Yeah. Um, it, the science of what we understand a fetus to be and what we understand development to be is, is worlds away more. We understand far more. I mean, DNA hadn't even been discovered when, when that decision was made. Uh, the science has progressed to the point where you can't make the arguments that you did back then. And so science is catching up to it. I genuinely believe that one day we will look at the, the way that the United States and even the Western world in general treated abortion much in the same way that we look back at people who were okay with slavery. Yeah. And I'm not saying that in terms of in any great moral grandstanding thing, because again, you can, you can overlay the abortion argument on the slavery argument. The majority of people in America back in that day were basically saying, yeah, we don't think this is right, but we really don't think this is our place to do it. I mean, abolitionists, there were like five of them in the United States comparatively. (laughs) And I'm of course very much exaggerating there. Um, and slave owners, there were not a ton of them. I mean, in terms of the majority of the South were not slave owners. So it affected less people than you think it did. You think oh, you always think it's hard on one side. You had all the slave owners hard on one side. You had all the abolitionists. Right. And no, those were the extremes. And you had everybody else kind of not wanting to really talk about it in the middle. It's the abortion thing, thing that is, happens. Yeah. The abortion thing is a perfect anal- analogous thing to that. Um, and I really do. I think that I think that as as time goes on and as the science continues to catch up to it, people will look back on it with kind of a. I think there will be a, an element of shame to the way we treated it. I won't even go so far as to say I'm a, I'm a little concerned about the scientific process and the way things go, though. Yeah, that's true. I mean, when people use the phrases like the science is in on this or for sure science has decided as if science is like this. Hard, fast thing. thing. No, right. It, rather than a process of discovery, right, in which hypotheses are challenged, right, all the way through and continue to be challenged and can be rechallenged at any time right. as new evidence comes to light. Like to say, the science is settled, right, on this issue, and that's and that's not or even, right. even worse. Fauci going out and saying, "I, I represent am, science. I am the science. I represent yeah. science." So when they attack me, they attack science. No, science is not a religious entity. Right. I represent God, and so when people attack me, they're attacking God. Nope. How dumb does that sound? Yes. Okay, you just said the same thing. You just use science, and you're using it religiously. Yeah. As if it's not some sort of process of discovery. Yeah. And, And yes, these, like, the processes that we're using for this novel coronavirus are unique. Yeah. They will be challenged. Right. They will be challenged scientifically if it's allowed. Right. Over the course of years, data will come in. And if we are concerned about a real scientific process and a real scientific outcome, we will allow the data to come forth no matter what it is, no matter what it tells us, no matter who it makes right and who it makes wrong. Yeah. And it will eventually come out. Right. My concern is that depending how it comes out or what comes out, Right. Will it or will it not be suppressed? That's right. what I'm worried about. Right. 
and and I guess that's the thing. I mean, I want to I want to be clear about too is like like not, I would love for them to come out and start proving over the next 10, 15 years. You know what? All these vaccines were perfectly safe. There's no harmful side effects, right. just like we said, and we have the data to show it. Yeah, and I'd be like, awesome! Everybody, round of applause. Right, good. Right, that's what I'd that's what I'd like to see. Right, because the the alternative is not great. No, no, it's not. No, not at all. And and again, that's that's the thing I think about with the abortion issue. I'm not even saying that like, oh, the science is in, but like, as yeah. it progresses, like you are losing ground in what you originally thought was happening and could make the arguments for. Those arguments are ever shrinking because time has gone on and we've come to understand more of what's happening and, and, and all of those things. And again, I think there are still people who would just say, basically say, you know, well, it's not actually about whether or not it's a life or not or whatever. It's just, you know, it's it's a woman's decision and right to choose. Okay, if that's the argument you want to make, yeah. that's a separate argument. As soon as we start argument. discovering whether or not a baby can feel pain and at what stage, yeah, now we have a problem. Right. And again, for me, I, I, have, a, I have a very... Morally and ethically, I do believe that that abortion is wrong because I do believe life can, begins at conception. I believe that 100%, but I can't make that argument legally in a court of law. Yeah. Whether or not a, a, a just-conceived baby is alive. I can prove that it's— We I discussed can sign, that before, yeah. but it's a little bit like you get a death certificate when the heart stops beating right. for a certain amount of time. You're going to get a death certificate— and so if you're going to say, oh, when does life begin? You could just look at what we say for death and go the opposite way. Yeah. And so those kind of things from from the libertarian perspective of me, I would say, OK, that's as far as you can take it legally at this point, right. according to, to what the science and what all these things show us. Um, again, the morally, thing, is, I do feel very strongly the other direction from but. from the from the liberty perspective, I would say. If you are going to say that you don't want the government involved in this private decision yeah. between you and your doctor, then you better start applying that law universally yep. to all medical decisions. Yeah. If it's not good for if it's not good for one, it's not good for any of them. Right. And so if the law is not going to be applied equally, then we're not going to apply it equally. Right. And as long as the government's involved in all these other decisions that I make, I'm between right. me and my doctor about my kids or about myself and what I will and will not put in my body, then I'm sorry. Yeah. There's no argument there. Right. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I so that's that's what I think will happen. If 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 anything happens at all, it will be put on to a, a you know, say like they'll do, you know, fifteen weeks and above you can't you can't abort. Yeah. Or they'll say no, this this is just bad precedent. We're not going to do with this anymore. But states can do what they want, um, and that's and that's where we'll end up. I personally don't think any Republican in the world has the spine to do what what uh, conservatives and pro life groups have been asking for for years, which is put your neck on the line yeah. and do what it takes to overturn this decision. Right. right. And there's thousands and millions of people that keep voting and advocating and working towards that with no one that will actually step up and do anything about right. it. And that's been my entire life. No one will actually step up and stop anything Yeah, that you just keep voting for it. You do your walks for life. You do these protests, you, you, whatever you do and you keep voting for this party that is spineless, does nothing and right. won't actually in the end do anything. Right. It's troubling. Yeah for the people that have put a lot of hope in, in the political solution. I've always thought that the solution to abortion is going to come through another mode and it won't be political, mm. but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole thing, man. Kind of like, kind of like watching smoking become culturally unacceptable and start to work its way out. Right. You know, that's kind of what I thought would happen. Maybe eventually culture turns. Yeah to a point you know yeah where uh hillary clinton's utopia is actually realized where abortion is safe and rare <laughs> safe legal and rare <laughs> safe yeah. legal and rare and it's not if any of only those things. if only <laughs> yeah yeah i would i would take let's start with rare <laughs> yeah 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 it's it's it is a tricky one man and it's a tricky one as a 
it's a tricky one to navigate as a pastor because you have to think about the people who have had that experience and who have right. who have made that choice and different things like that. And it doesn't. It's it's, it's not, not like any, it's the un- unforgivable sin or anything no. like that. It's not. It's it's not. It's but it is a it is a tough thing. I mean, to be able to weigh where you're at as a person and what your what your conviction is and what that conviction is for you versus what that conviction is for universally and saying this is just something you have to stand by and whatever and that's one of the tricky things is when you get into anything that is like this is the one issue that if you do not agree or do not feel that that you're going to be cast out for Um, but but pastorally there's a human cost on all sides of that issue like people that are dealing with the ramifications after the fact yeah and people that have walked through it in the past and their feelings at one time Maybe one way when you encounter them, and maybe another way yeah. later on. And that's and I would there, even there is a lot of right. cost well, to these decisions, even if people initially feel okay about it. Like that's a okay. we make plenty of decisions in our lives. Well, and I that even eventually we feel differently about down the road. I even wonder how much the church itself, at least in America has contributed to the rampant use of abortion that we've seen because of the shame that was attached to, to keeping a woman, a a woman having a child out of, out of wedlock. And so you've created a situation where this is your alternative is to just get rid of it and pretend like it never happened. And we'll all just act like nothing ever happened. Yeah. And we basically have, have, through shame pushed women into feeling like this is their only option if they're ever gonna and being between a rock and a hard place yeah and again i i i think that uh, really the this responsibility does we it does fall to the church in that we need to do more than we have done in terms of accepting women who are in this position yeah and i'm not just talking about oh yeah you know send them to a pregnancy care center but like not acting like it's the end of the world for them and the end of their life and the end of whatever, because they're going to be a single mother. Like, no, this life is still a life worth celebrating regardless of how it came to be. And they need to feel that they need to have that acceptance. They need to have that love. And no, it's not condoning the action, but it's not like you, you do with anything like that with anything else. I mean, not with a drug addict, not with somebody who struggles with alcoholism, whatever it may be. Someone who struggles with pornography, you don't just Okay, well, guess you're used up. This is just a, yep, like forget and, you. And so much of the church has done that with with yeah. whether it's teen pregnancy or just single woman. And again, I say that as a as a as a guy who has a niece who was born that way, like born out of wedlock, and she is amazing and she is beautiful. And I cannot imagine our family without her, and I wouldn't want to. And yep. God has done amazing things through her life already. Yep. Um, the, the things that have happened to my sister-in-law in a positive sense, the things that have happened in, in that side of the family have been amazing because of this little girl. You cannot tell me. You cannot look at somebody like that and say, well, this was a mistake. No. Right. Mistakes were made. She was not, and she will never be, and I will fight anybody who tries to tell me otherwise right. without question. Right. And so we've got to get to this point where we can look at these women and we can give them a place that's not just safe, but that celebrates the reality of the life that is there and celebrates them yeah. as they're dealing with this and as they're walking through this and walk beside them. Yeah. Hands and yeah, down, that, that should be the place. Yeah. And it is a delicate balance because there is still the reality that like, yes, we are, we are required to call out sin. The baby is not sin. Right. Never. Yeah. And two wrongs do not make a right. No. No. Sorry, that was random and preachy there, there you at go. the end, but there you go. <laughs> How do we get to that all, the, no all the way around? We were just discussing what happens if Roe Versailles gets overturned and it got later and later at night, and here we are. Yes. Yeah, what time is this? 10.20. Uh, it's 10.20. Yeah, it's it's late for us. <laughs> we're old men. We, we need are. to get to bed. We are. <laughs> <sighs> it makes me sad. I want to play Skyrim. <laughs> I still haven't finished that game, and I need to finish it. And yes, I know it's been around forever, but... I just wait until people give me game systems. <laughs> Every game system I've ever owned, people have just given it to me. So, you know, that's there you go. <laughs> but I just got Skyrim last year for Christmas. That was one of my one of my gifts. So nice. I've only been playing it for about a year, off and on when I have time because I have three children. 
All right, you guys, tell us tell us what you think about all this. Uh, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or uh, our our email is the things we say at mail dot com. Yes. So there you go. Or Facebook dot com slash the things we say podcast. Yes. That's how you get to find us. Yes. Thank you guys. We're still out there. It's been real. See you later. Thanks for joining the conversation today. The Things We Say is produced by Nate Ward. Technical direction is provided by Sheldon Stauffer. You can subscribe to The Things We Say on SoundCloud and iTunes. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at The Things We Say Podcast to keep the conversation going. This has been The Things We Say. See you next time.